Good morning, everyone. Thanks again to our, our IT guys. I know they've been battling with the changes of, of system. Um, you know, Paul's got a few minutes each week to try and get things up and running. Um, and you might think that you know, in, in the in the more professional companies, things will go much smoother. But I was just thinking this week at my work. Um, I work for a company which is multinational and has billion-dollar turnover. And they've just put in a new phone system, um, and you know, lots of trailing about it. It's going to be really good. This phone system, lots of functionality, nice emails telling me all about it. Anyway, so after day one, we could make outgoing calls, but we couldn't receive them. After day two, we couldn't make outgoing calls or receive outgoing calls. Um, so, uh, like all good IT departments, they resorted to sending lots of emails about it, updating you, and that they're still looking into the problem. So, uh, doesn't matter how much money you've got, IT can get the, the best of them. Right, um, I don't know if you remember the story um, of this painting above my head here um, that was gradually flaking away inside a Spanish church. Um, so a well-meaning local artist uh, was given the job of renovating the painting. Do you remember what it looked like when they'd finished? <laughs> yeah, now I, I'm proud to say that I got a D for my O-grade art, which is pretty hopeless, um, but I think even I could have done a better job uh, than, than that. Um, or maybe you remember this man here, not, not President Obama, but the man next to him, he was called, if you've forgotten, Tamsanka Janchi, and he was the man who was supposed to be signing for the death at Nelson Mandela's funeral. Now, that was a funeral that was beamed all around the world, um, and there was lots of leaders there, as you'd imagine, Nelson Mandela, a great man, giving heartfelt speeches. Uh, unfortunately, this man was a bit of a fraud, um, and it turned out that, as one expert put it, he was later uh, seen making childish hand gestures throughout the whole funeral, which was sad as uh, no one stopped him until after the event had finished. So uh, I think the look on President Obama's face maybe suggests that he's thinking something's not quite, quite right there. I don't know if those two people, the, the, the painter and the signer, got their jobs due to an impressive CV, um, or was it just some fast talking in an interview? Um, but basically, when it came to backing it up with their actions, they were found uh, wanting and their behaviour just didn't really stand up to scrutiny. And this morning, as we read uh, chapter 2 of Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, um, we're going to look at this whole area of, of authenticity, backing up our words with our actions. And we'll see the kind of evidence that Paul gives um, to prove the authenticity of his Christian life and his ministry. Today's passage deals with Paul's reflections as he thinks back to his previous visit to Thessalonica, um, which we read in Acts chapter 17 last week. And if you remember, that was a visit that was cut short just because of a riot had broken out due to the impact that Paul's preaching was having on the city. So his intention in First Thessalonians is really to write to encourage the young church he'd left behind and let them know he'd not forgotten them. As we heard from Andy uh, in chapter 1, this baby church was doing really, really well. Um, in fact, they were famous across the region, a role model of faith, it says. And so now the focus of the letter turns from the receivers in chapter 1 to the writer of the letter in chapter 2, as Paul defends his own ministry as the, as the real thing. It's thought that maybe his abrupt departure uh, at night from Thessalonica had led some people in the church to say Paul had basically deserted them, and in fact he was a charlatan. And I'm sure those words would have been really hurtful to Paul. So he writes in chapter 2 to refute those accusations. So, was Paul the real deal? Was his message backed up by his actions? And what can we all learn uh, from this passage today? So let's read it together. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. 
you know, brothers, that our visit to you was not a failure. We had previously suffered and been insulted in Philippi, as you know, but with the help of our God, we dare to tell you his gospel in spite of strong opposition. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please men, but God who tests our hearts. You know we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from men, not from you or anyone else. As apostles of Christ, we could have been a burden to you, but we were gentle among you, like a mother caring for her little children. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you become so dear to us. Surely you remember, brothers, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Okay, I want to pick out three things uh, from this passage. Firstly, we're going to notice that Paul was all about preaching good news, not fake news. And secondly, we'll see he wasn't living a counterfeit Christianity. And then thirdly, we're going to look at some examples of consistent Christianity. I wonder if 2017 will be known as the year uh, when alternative facts and fake news entered our everyday vocabulary, thanks to Donald Trump and his press secretary. Maybe. But praise God, as Christians, we have good news, not fake news, to share. And so before we think about Paul's actions um, and his authenticity, let's note the key words that occur four times in these 12 verses. What is the one thing at the heart of Paul's ministry? Verse 2, with the help of our God, we dare to tell you his gospel. Verse 4, we speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. Verse 8, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God. Verse 9, we worked not to be a burden, while we preached the gospel of God to you. Paul was all about the gospel. Good news, not fake news. Not alternative facts, but the gospel truth. The good news that Jesus is the saviour. God incarnate, who died for our sins and rose from the dead. The good news that those who repent and believe in Jesus can have their sins forgiven. The good news that we can have a personal relationship with God, as, as Rob's already mentioned as we took communion together. This good news was at the heart of all that Paul did, and it needs to be central to all that we do too. Paul was about telling, speaking, sharing, and preaching the gospel. And so God used him, as we know from history, to spread the gospel throughout the whole Roman Empire. And then in the centuries that followed, the gospel has spread almost to the whole world, indeed even to these fine shores. Today, God still uses the same tools, men, women, and children, telling others about Jesus. That is God's plan A, and in fact, there is no plan B. Did you know that you are trusted with the gospel? Currently, we face relatively mild opposition in this country, 
Andy talked about a chill in the country, maybe, unlike in Paul's day when it was very much not mild opposition. But do we dare to tell others, even in these days of mild opposition? Do we delight to tell others? It's a real challenge, isn't it? And as a church, we started in 2017 together, focusing on the fact uh, that we were made for this very mission. And we had some great discussions, certainly in our home group over the last four weeks. People shared some really encouraging stories about how they'd uh, shared the gospel with neighbours and witnessed to friends. And we've been praying, haven't we, about friends we're going to hopefully reach in 2017 among Christian friends. In other words, we're following in the footsteps of Paul, continuing on with his work. And so he reminds us that if we're a Christian this morning, we've been entrusted with this message from God. And remember, the Bible tells us that God uses our very weaknesses so that his power can be revealed. And it's good to remember that as we try and share the gospel and don't let all those doubts and excuses that Andy flagged up to us to just kind of keep us, keep us silent. So Paul could write in verse 1 that his previous visit was not a failure. I think that was a bit of an understatement, uh, if you ask me. The clear fruit of the gospel was there. Uh, it was anything but a failure. Verse 9 of chapter 1 tells us that people had turned from idols to serve the living and true God. Changed life had resulted and a new church had been born. And I think as well as the hardship and the physical persecution that was very much part of Paul's life, um, I think it must have been exciting to preach the gospel in a city, in a new place, and to live amongst those people for a few months, and then to leave, go on somewhere else, but to hear back that, yes, a church was flourishing. That must have been fascinating and exciting for Paul. But as Andy reminded us two weeks ago, um, that model of sowing seeds into a new community and looking to plant churches is one that continues to this day. And so we continue to pray at Regent Chapel about a future church plant, maybe some years off still, but we should all want to be involved in that kind of church planting ministry too. Whether it's actually going to a church plant in another part of our city or just helping strengthening and building up this church so that we're in a position to allow it to happen. That is part of a healthy focus for any church. Okay, having seen that Paul's ministry was centred on making the gospel known and planting churches, taking on board that challenge to be sharers of the gospel, we come to kind of the crux of the passage. Did Paul's life back up his words? Did those who are criticising, did they basically have a point? So we're going to look at it under two contrasting sections, counterfeit Christianity and consistent Christianity. So firstly, in verses 3 to 6, Paul points to the things that he didn't do when he brought the gospel to Thessalonica, what we might call counterfeit Christianity. And the problem with something that is a fake is that at some point it usually gets found out. I don't know if you um, remember last year, David Cameron was giving uh, a speech where he made a comment about people supporting lots of different teams. Um, and then he said, uh, although I wish you all supported West Ham like me. You know, polite laughter in the audience as you do when politicians kind of try and connect with the common man. Um, but the only problem with that statement was he'd previously gone on record saying he was an Aston Villa supporter. And as one journalist pointed out at the time, football fans are more likely to forget their own children's names than the name of the football team they support. So uh, he was clearly a fake football fan. I'm sure he's been called worse than that. But what does the counterfeit Christian look like? And can any of those traits be found in us? So let's read uh, the verses again in 3 to 6. For the appeal we make to you does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. 
On the contrary, we speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please men, but God who tests our hearts. You know, we never use flattery, nor do we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from men, not from you or anyone else. So in these four verses, Paul says, the fake Christian teaches error, has impure motives, uses trickery and flattery, and tries to get the praise of the crowd. And behind that mask is just plain old greed for money. So let's just think about this idea of teaching error. That's something Paul was very uh, scrupulous in avoiding. We need to know the gospel and be clear that we're teaching the truth. When Paul left Thessalonica, when he was chased out by the riot, he went to the town of Berea. And the book of Acts records something impressive about the people there. It says, They received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. And if we are going to know the truth and be able to communicate it clearly, then reading the Bible regularly and Christian books and Christian websites is going to be a must. We need to know the truth and study it if we're going to be, avoid being led astray by error. Leaders of churches are given a specific duty to make sure that heresy is not taught from our church services. But I also believe we all have a general collective responsibility to make sure that when you come to church week by week, what is being said from the Bible and claimed from the Bible and claimed for God is actually true. We need to avoid impure motives. We need to search our hearts about what is motivating us to serve in church and even to share our faith, possibly. Ambition, pride, money, or common motives amongst the travelling teachers of Paul's time, and those traps certainly um, remain today. Paul describes it really well when he talks about putting on a mask, putting on a mask to hide greed. It's easy to appear generous on the outside, but maybe behind that there's a love of money or materialism. And I think it was John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church, that famously said, the last part of a man to be converted is his wallet. (laughs) The New Testament indicates that Paul was a tent maker, um, and at times Paul received gifts to finance his ministry too. He also arranged for money to be passed on to other churches as well. And some may have claimed that he was just in it for the money, a very toxic claim. And one that's been made against Christian leaders and churches uh, all through the ages and often with good reason sadly in this church i think we practice a very high standard of openness when it comes to the handling of money and so we should we're keen that everything is clearly above board and is seen to be so so three times a year all the members are given the current church balance sheet at members meetings four times a year the trustees review the latest accounts in quarterly meetings each month the elders review the finances, and once a year they're independently audited by an accountant from another church before being summarised and put on the Charity Commission website. And as a charity, um, the Charity Commission have the right to come and look at our accounts too. All checks and payments from our accounts need two signatures or two electronic authorisations before they can be paid. And we always seek to keep at least three months uh, for the staff salaries, a three-month buffer in line with Charity Commission guidance and good practice and much of that good practice is is thanks to to Paul Mullis who in turn has built on the treasury role that Les Wright held for many years but we mustn't take this for granted we need to make sure that the legacy 
that we hand on to those who come after us is untainted by financial dishonesty or greed. And this financial openness will be particularly important as we look to raise funds for a building extension in the next year. And we ask people to give sacrificially to that project. We must avoid the idea of church being motivated by money or that funds collected might be used in a way that would raise suspicion. In the area of how we present the gospel, um, when we talk about the gospel, Paul warns us we need to avoid trickery or the use of flattery. We need to be honest and straightforward when we talk about Jesus. Perhaps the idea of flattery today has lost some of its meaning. You might think of a a flattery being being full of compliments. But the Greek word here is kolakia, and that means the tortuous methods by which one man seeks to gain influence over another, generally for selfish ends. And if you know the book or the film, uh, The Lord of the Rings, there's that character Grima Wormtongue. Uh, He's an example of someone who's constantly whispering into the king's ears, trying to bend his will so he gets his way and not the king's way. And in talking about the gospel, we must avoid trickery or flattery. We need to be honest, too, about the parts of Christian teaching that are not popular in our society today, and we need to stand by them. God as the creator, marriage being between one man and one woman, the fact God made us male and female, the fact that every person has a sin problem, is separated from God and faces judgment. But crucially, we must communicate with gentleness and respect. Flattery, appealing to people's vanity, doesn't sit well with the gospel, which tells people that they actually have a sin problem and need a saviour. We should never tell people to look within for answers because it's only looking to God that real change can occur. And we need to be wary about overdoing showmanship just to make our services more appealing. Um, We should avoid embellishing our worship with rituals that can soon take over as church history uh, shows us. Or trying to be so culturally fun that for outsiders that maybe the methods drown out the message. I believe there must always be a central place for the Bible, the Word of God, to be opened and explained week in, week out. I'm not saying our services should be boring, definitely not, and there's room for creativity uh, and new things, but we must preserve our weekly clear presentation of Christian teaching. There was nothing devious about Paul's methods, no health, wealth or prosperity in his teaching or in Jesus' words either. Instead, there was talk of persecution, hardship and a focus on taking up our cross on a daily basis. No offers of fraudulent blessings or indulgences which became a feature of the church in the centuries that followed. So plenty of warnings for us there, plenty of things to look out for that might be counterfeit Christianity, things we need to watch out for in our churches and in our lives. Okay, I'm guessing everyone is aware that um, the pound coin, the, the, the great pound coin is going to be replaced this year. So it's time to break open your piggy banks and spend it because it's going to be worthless by the end of the year. Um, it's going to be replaced with this uh, new rather fancy um, non-round coin because um, that's a lot harder to copy apparently. Um, so think of all the supermarket trolleys, all those vending machines, and they're going to have to be changed, the metro ticket machines. Um, maybe on one sort of silver, silver lining, maybe the metro ticket machine will actually take my pound coins now. <laughs> no, the train's coming and the sweat's coming down. Yes, I can see it's happened to you too. Yep, yep. 
Paul talks about the life of the consistent Christian in this next section. And like the design of the new pound coin, uh, you just can't fake this. He reminds the Thessalonians um, that of the positive things that he did when he lived among them. And there's quite a, a list here. He was brave, he was gentle, he was caring, he was full of love, he was hardworking, he was prepared to share his everyday life. He endured hardship, took on a parental role, he comforted, encouraged, he lived a holy and righteous life. This was consistent Christianity lived out in front of others. So let's just spend our last few minutes thinking about some of those attributes. And as we do that, um, you know, we've been sort of quite negative thinking about things we need to watch out for. As you do that, if you hear things that the Holy Spirit's prompting in your mind that you're doing well, listen out for that encouragement. Yes, you're strong in that area. And be encouraged by God's grace in your life. But also listen out for that conscience which says to you, yeah, I, I could do better in this area. There's room for improvement. Okay. One of the strongest aspects of Paul's character that comes through in this passage is his gentle, caring nature. He was clearly a brave guy. I think he was probably a pretty tough guy. He endured prison, beatings, angry mobs. He debated with Greek philosophers. He stood up in hostile synagogues. He spoke to Jewish rabbis. But none of that toughness made him hard towards these new Christians. Now, gentleness is much undervalued in our Twitter outrage world. I used to think, actually, that Twitter was just going to be a niche social media thing that would probably fade away, uh, but it turns out it's the way that presidential campaigns are fought and won. <laughs> but we don't see much gentleness, do we, on Twitter or in the media generally or in our public life. Gentleness is not something that we see held up as a good thing. And yet we all appreciate it, don't we, when people are gentle towards us, especially when we're in a difficult situation. Paul didn't take the high-handed authority of an apostle. He acted more as a mother caring for her young children. He was a strong man, of no doubt, and yet here he uses the imagery of a gentle mother in verse 7. And what we often see in mothers is that willingness to spend themselves and to sacrifice for the good of their children. Key attributes of, of Christian leadership are pastoral care, gentleness, and self-sacrifice. That is not doormat Christianity that is following in the footsteps of Jesus who though he was in very nature God made himself nothing taking the very nature of a servant verse 11 Paul also talks about caring for them as a father too doesn't he now one thing I know about parenthood is that you're not in it for the money that's for certain the easy ride the good night's sleep or even the tidy house Although there was a few uh, brief um, golden moments uh, the other year on holiday when Lucy and I were able to relax in the back of a pedalo, having a cold drink while Alison and Shona did all the hard work. Yeah, great moment. As I recall, I think it ended rather horribly. Those Alison steers into a flock of swans at the side of the, the river. But, uh, but while it lasted, it was, it was a glorious moment. But Paul loved the church at Thessalonica like they were his family. He sees them as individuals. He talks about each of you in verse 11. He talks about them like he was their father. And remember this morning that you individually matter to God. He is your heavenly father. Paul could point to his fatherly encouraging, his comforting and his urging of the Thessalonians to live lives worthy of God. And that's a pretty good model for all fathers to live by. Encouraging your children, comforting them and urging them to follow God with their lives. 
There's a place for discipline, definitely, but too often you hear yourself being a policeman for your kids, and that encouraging and comforting is, is forgotten. Christian leaders, too, need to be aware of their spiritual parenting role and avoid seeing people in church just as a resource to be used to accomplish their ideas, but rather in love to encourage people to follow Christ more deeply. And if you desire any leadership role or you feel that God's calling you in that direction, then ask yourself if these are the signs and characteristics that are alive in your life right now. The other key characteristic of the consistent Christian that comes through here is is that ability to be completely open and to share their lives. I think some of us honestly struggle with that, and I put myself definitely in that that bracket, to be open and honest. Not for Paul, the celebrity Christian leader who jets in, looking all suave and sophisticated, gives a great preach, and then he's out of there straight after the service. No, Paul lived amongst them in the struggle, sharing his everyday life. And it's in the ordinary, everyday stuff where people see that the gospel really does work, that Jesus is with us, working through us, when we chat with our neighbours and play with our kids, when we turn up at home group tired after a hard day's work, Jesus is there when we visit the sick and the lonely, even when our own health is maybe not as perfect as it could be. Don't underestimate the work and power of an ordinary, everyday Christian doing the regular things, like praying, being a faithful husband or wife, faithful even when your partner's health is failing, when your elderly parents need caring for when your children still need your help long after they've left home and I see many examples of people doing exactly that in this church today powerful examples of the gospel being lived out in those kind of ways but this everyday Christian life needs to be seen by the world around us and that can only happen when we let people into our homes and into our lives I worry sometimes that too many Christians live like the saying an Englishman's home is his castle and the drawbridge is permanently up as we look to share the gospel we need to get away from the idea that evangelism is some kind of great one-off event at church of course that has its place that we invite someone to but it's part of an ongoing process that begins when we invite people into our homes and into our lives so how can we share our lives with each other and with those we're trying to reach There's lots of simple things, isn't there? If you've got a hobby or an interest, can you get someone else to do it with you? Can you think of non-Christians that could join in your group? Is there an obvious need or situation in your local neighbourhood where you could be involved and get your hands dirty, maybe? Let's not obsess about having me time, but look for ways of reaching out to others, even as we unwind and relax at times. Another aspect uh, we see from Paul's life is really just the sheer hard work. He talks about this in another of his letters to the church at Corinth where he says, so I will very gladly spend for you everything I have and expend myself as well. Jesus said, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. As well as sharing his everyday life, Paul was prepared to put in a shift. Be there in the hard times when things were not pleasant. And do you think maybe in our Western world, in our affluent lifestyle, we've lost sight of what it means to work hard and put up with hardship? I was stopped in my tracks the other week by this poster. 
eating doesn't kill you, sofas do. And uh, yeah, so it kind of made me think uh, of the sort of medical aspects of that, but just even the kind of maybe some of the truth behind it as I was trying to get fit after you know, the usual Christmas overeating. Um, but I wonder if Paul, he might challenge us today and ask, is there too much spiritual sofa time in our lives? The consistent Christian will be hardworking, even when it's tough. They'll still be reading the Bible regularly, year upon year. They'll be prepared to do the unglamorous jobs, like cleaning the church or even cleaning up after someone in the home. Paul makes a really bold claim, doesn't he, as we come to an end here in verse 10, that he, Silas and Timothy, lived lives that were holy, righteous and blameless. Wow. Who did he call as his witnesses to back up that claim, though? The very Thessalonian believers that he'd lived with for many months and God himself. I wonder if we would dare to make that claim for our lives. Or would those that we know best perhaps raise a quizzical eyebrow if we did? It was Mahatma Gandhi who said uh, rather damningly, I like your Christ, I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Okay, let's try and summarise what we've seen from today's passage. Central to Paul's life was the gospel. It underpinned everything he did. There was nothing fake or pretend about him. He preached the gospel with his words, then lived it out in front of the Thessalonians on a daily basis. And so the challenges to take away from today's passage are this. Are we focused on sharing the gospel throughout our life, not just for a four-week series? Do we aspire to Paul's church-planting vision? Are we avoiding the traps of counterfeit Christianity, which undermined our message? Do we use flattery, greed, or try to please others instead of living to please God? And are we meeting the challenges of living out consistent Christianity through working hard, caring for others, and sharing our lives? And I suppose it comes down to, to this. If someone was telling you about a loving God who had changed their lives and could do the same for you, would it be convincing if they use flattering words and seem to be hiding behind a mask? Or what if, as well as sharing the message with you, they also let you see into their life to see God at work? Perhaps Peter, the apostle, summed it up best when he wrote, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. Verse 12, God is calling you into his kingdom and his glory. Let's be encouraged by that. Let's be comforted by that. And he's entrusted you with the gospel. So let's urge each other to live lives worthy of God as we share that gospel by our words and our actions in the week ahead. Thank you, Keith. <clears throat> I think the uh, I said there's great challenge, many great challenges in, in that passage, and as Keith just brought that to us. And as we as we wrestle these things, as we struggle, as we think about um, how we can bring people into our lives, allow people into our lives, uh, and and show Christ in our lives. Maybe the best thing that we can be doing is is looking up, looking up at Jesus, looking to Him as the example, the one who sacrificed, the one who gave everything. So it's just a great challenge for us today, just to be looking up at this one who is our saviour. So we're going to stand.